Let me pray for us as we dive into this. Father, we thank You that we get to know something of Your glory. And so God, we're grateful, Father, for those that have gone before us to preserve our understanding of Your glory. Those that have even paid their lives that we might understand it. But most of all, we thank You for Christ that secures it. Uh, We pray in His name. Amen. Well, as uh, Nick mentioned at the beginning, uh, we are concluding our series today on the five solas, the five onlys of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, The Protestant Reformation was an event that occurred 500 years ago on Tuesday, although it was kind of before that. But nevertheless, we measure it by 500 years ago this coming Tuesday, October the 31st on All Hallows Eve. Now we call it Halloween. Uh, where God used simple and yet courageous men and women to rescue the gospel that had been clouded by years and years and years of poor teaching. Uh, and those five solas, those five onlys, are the phrases that define the Reformation's recovery. And really, I think what you found, those of you that have been coming week after week, it's just the basics of Christianity. They really get to the heart of what Christians believe. Namely, that salvation or redemption comes By grace alone, that is no merit of our own, through faith alone, by trusting in Christ alone, nothing else, just Jesus, uh, as it is given to us or revealed to us in Scripture alone. And today, the point of all of that, the glory of God alone. So Martin Luther, John Calvin, Jane Gray, William Tyndale, and today Ulrich Zwingli and a host of others that are lost to history, they died and they lived and they taught and many of them suffered so as to bring clarity to this Gospel. Why? Ultimately, so that God would receive glory. God would receive the glory. So the entire point, folks, of human history, the entire point of human history, the entire point of science, the entire point of music, the entire point of art, the entire point of education, the entire point of politics, the entire point of government, the entire point of your life is bound up in that phrase, the glory of God. And yet, though that is the case, the glory of God will not be mentioned tonight on the evening news. The glory of God is not in any science book at American University. The glory of God will not be discussed this week at Georgetown University's School of Foreign Affairs. The glory of God will not be uh, talked about in today's TV shows and movies that will go on later this afternoon. Uh, The Washington Post did not mention the glory of God today. Uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, they will hardly recognize the glory of God before they will a thousand other lesser things today. The glory of God will not be mentioned in today's tours of the Capitol. And the glory of God will hardly be mentioned in the Uber and taxi rides that will dart about our great city today. And yet the fact remains that the purpose of our existence is to give everlasting glory to God due to His infinite worth. The undeniable reality of mankind's neglect of this fact is no doubt the quintessential evidence of our depravity. that We don't recognize it and live for it and speak about it. And so this morning... And every morning, but in particular this morning, we're going to steal away from our world's carelessness to the glory of God by giving attention to this great topic, the glory of God. Now, I am not going to sit in any one single passage. This is going to be one of those topical sermons, uh, which we don't do very often at Restoration Church. But nevertheless, uh, if you want to turn your Bible open to one place, just to sort of stare at one passage, because you're not going to be able to keep up, uh, turn over to John 17. And you'll just see there, if you want to have one passage, just that's Jesus' high priestly prayer. Note how often he prays for the glory of God. I'm going to do all of this while mentioning the life of Ulrich Zwingli so that we can see how God used clay pots to accomplish the praise of his name. So there are three persons in the Reformation that kind of come down as the great movers and shakers. There's three guys. Martin Luther, John Calvin, and Zwingli, Ulrich Zwingli. Zwingli was born to a farmer in the Alps of Switzerland in 1484. And Zwingli loved the Swiss people. In fact, he said, he, well, he described himself, quote, as a Swiss professing Christ among the Swiss. That was his definition of himself. 
Zwingli was graduated from the University of Basel in 1506. He became a parish priest in a place called Galeris just after that. He later wrote of himself during that time, just after his graduation, that, quote, though I was young, ecclesiastical duties inspired in me more fear than joy because I knew and remain convinced that I would give an account of the blood of the sheep which would perish as a consequence of my carelessness. Unquote. And so in there, you can hear Zwingli's passion to see God glorified amongst the sheep, amongst the people that God had given him. And I think it's also important to note as we think about these figures, many of the, the, uh, the, the authors of the Reformation, many of them were not academics held up in libraries. Most of them were laboring to see God glorified amongst his people as pastors. Most all of them were that way. So they taught the word, these, these guys did, Day by day, they prayed with their people. They lived among the sick and the dying. A number of them in the midst of plagues did not leave in order to stay there and care for their people. Uh, They administered discipline cases. They shared dinner tables with regular people because that's who they were. They were regular people. Yet they were regular people who God used extraordinarily. Just like He can with you. I think they can get lost on that, us on those kinds of things. But Zwingli, he wanted his people to know God, to enjoy God, to glorify God. So much so that after getting his hands on a Greek New Testament, he began to study the Bible so much that he could recite all the Pauline epistles from memory. He was so convinced of the need for his people to know God, to enjoy God, that he did something that was revolutionary in 1519. He informed his people that he would no longer preach the traditional kind of brief moralistic lectures that were common. Instead, he told them that he was going to preach verse by verse right through the Bible. And words that they could understand. He started in the book of Matthew. He then went through the book of Acts, then on through the epistles. And by 1525, he preached right through the New Testament. And again, keep in mind, I mentioned he started in 1519. Keep in mind, he's doing this when Martin Luther had not even been excommunicated by the Roman Catholic Church yet. And I bring that up to show us that it seems as though Zwingli is arriving at the same core Reformation ideas of the grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, Scripture alone, for God's glory alone. seems as though he's arriving at those same kinds of things apart from Luther without his influence at the time. So it seems as though God is really doing something great in this time. And so because Zwingli, though, doesn't preach canned moralistic sermons, he becomes wildly popular to the people there. He's in Zurich, same city our sister Ruth is from. Uh, So he's there preaching the word and the people want to come day after day. They're pouring into the church building, pouring in there day after day. Why? Because they're hearing the Bible for the first time. They're hearing people read the Bible, preach the Bible, something they had just not been very experienced with. They'd heard portions of the Bible, but nothing like this. The reason for that is because Roman Catholic priests were not largely occupied with the Bible or the teaching of the Bible or the preaching of the Bible. Roman Catholic priests at the time were more occupied with the dispensing of the liturgical sacraments, not studying and teaching the Word. And so as Zwingli prayed, studied, and preached, his theology began to develop. And so as it did, he came to see things differently. Uh, So much so that he did the unthinkable at the time. He walks away from the Roman Catholic Church since because of his conviction of Scripture, he could no longer hold their convictions. So he walks away. In 1520, he renounces his paycheck from the Catholic Church. In 1522, he officially resigned as a priest of Zurich. At which time, could you imagine this? At which time the city council immediately hires him as the official preacher for the entire city. Now imagine them like, imagine me walking away from whatever, you know, the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, and I say, and then the city of Washington says, well, Nathan, we would love for you to be our city's preacher, God forbid. But nevertheless, just imagine that happening, right? Imagine what kind of opportunity now Zwingli had to sweep the word of God through the city. Zwingli did things like eat sausage during the fasting week of Lent in order to identify with the poor. He also was secretly married because he again believed in the authority of the word, not the authority of the Catholic law. And of course, all of this gets the attention of the Catholic church. 
Uh, it eventually led to a debate called the Great Disputation in 1523. Now, just think about this. 1523, this Great Disputation, 600 people show up in the church building. All right? And many of those 600 people are Zwingli's parishioners. All right? It'd be sort of like you, those members of the church like me, I'm in a disputation, you guys show up. All right? Now, imagine this. The Catholic Church walks in the room, they see most of these people are just regular people, just the parishioners of Zwingli's church, and they say that that environment is not fitting for a dispute since it needed to be done by some council that was done for only the church leaders. Well, Zwingli, pulling off of the recovery of the priesthood of every believer, responded, I love this, by saying that in this room is without a doubt a Christian assembly. There is no reason why we should not discuss these matters, speak and decide the truth. See, this seems so tame to us today. But back then, that was a completely different understanding of the church. See, like we saw with Tyndale last week, the Roman Catholic Church understood that the only priests in the church were the priests themselves, the guys at the front. Regular Christian people could not be trusted to read and interpret the Bible. And this is why much of the Baptist tradition of congregational governance and elder leadership grew out of Zwingli's ideas that were recovered from the teaching of the word. But at the disputation then in 1523 and later that year there was a second disputation. Zwingli read out 67 articles. We talk a lot about the 95 thesis. The more I was studying this, we should really speak more about the 67 articles of Zwingli because they capture the doctrinal pursuits. Here's these articles that, that Zwingli wrote out have all kinds of reforms that we would now see as normal but back then, they were radical shifts. So let me give you an example of some of those uh, uh, articles. First off, he said he affirmed that Christ is the only way to salvation. Second, he taught that those who say the gospel needs confirmation by the church have it backwards. He said that anyone that teaches that things uh, are equal or higher than the gospel are in error and they do not understand the gospel. In reference to the Pope, he said that Christ was the only high priest. In reference to the Mass, he said that Christ was only sacrificed once. Therefore, Mass is without an error. Uh, therefore, Mass is an error. Purgatory, he said, is nowhere to be found in the Bible. And he got rid of all the ceremonial piety that surrounded church life. So, uh, as it relates to those things, one author described it like this. He said the, quote, thoughtless prayers, prescribed fasts, the bleached cows, and carefully shaven heads of the monks Holy days, incense, burning of candles, sprinkling of holy water, nuns' prayers, priest chatter, vigils, masses, this whole rubbish heap of ceremonials amounted to nothing but tomfoolery, unquote. And Zwingli again is seeing all of this as he gives himself to the study of God's word for the display of God's glory. Now, as you would expect, the Catholic Church is shocked at all of this. And in enters Eck. Do you all remember Eck from way back about a month ago at the very beginning? Remember, he's debating Luther. Well, he's running around Zurich and he writes and describes the churches in Zurich. And he describes them as follows. He says, quote, the altars are destroyed and overthrown. The images of the saints and the paintings are burned or broken up or defaced. They no longer have churches, but rather stables. So the reason why Zwingli had called for the simplicity in the church building was because he wanted his people not worship the idols of the saints, but instead to worship God through the ministry of the word so that he could then get out all of the clutter and make the glory of God clear. Now, the last thing I'll mention about Zwingli was his approach to the Lord's Supper. It's one of the things he's most noted for. See, the Roman Catholic Church had invented this thing called, the, called transubstantiation in 1215 where they said a Catholic priest spoke a Latin phrase that sounded to the people like hocus pocus, that's where we get the words, uh, over the elements of the bread and of the wine, and they believed that it would then change into the actual body and the actual blood of Christ. This was seen as the central element, still is seen as the central element of the Catholic Mass. It's a sort of re-crucifixion of Jesus, wherein the body is then given to the parishioner, now, at the time, back then, they would not give the wine. And I think that's still often the case today. But the Roman Catholic Church taught and still teaches that you need to eat of this actual body of Christ in order to receive grace for forgiveness. And so they came to that position again in the 13th century by taking the words of Christ literally when Jesus says, this is my body and this is 
my blood. But Zwingli quickly understood that Jesus also said he was the vine and he was the door. But no one actually believed he was literally saying he was those literal things. We understand that Jesus was speaking in that way in order to signify something about himself in those passages. And so as a result, Zwingli adopted a view of the Lord's Supper that most Christians hold today, the same that we would, namely that the elements of the Lord's Supper are meant to represent the body and the blood of Christ. They aren't the actual real elements. Now, Luther, it should be noted, did not agree with Zwingli. But instead, he took up a kind of middle position that said that Christ was in some way mysteriously with the elements. But regardless, Zwingli had struck at the heart of the Roman Catholic Church's sacramental theology. And as a result, he was considered and still is considered a heretic by the Roman Catholic Church. Now, Zwingli died a very curious death uh, after going out to war with his Protestant brethren there in Swiss. The Catholic Church had their armies coming towards him and he goes out to war Uh, With his people, he dies in a battle and upon the discovery of his body, they chop up his body. The Catholics chop up his body, burn him, take the ashes and mix them with dung in order to communicate their assessment. But we should ask the question again, why did he do all of this? Why did Zwingli do all of this? It certainly wasn't to make his life easier. I think we get our answer in a sentence that he wrote in 1530. He said, quote, in the business of the Christian religion and faith, we have long since staked our lives and set our minds on pleasing only our heavenly captain in whose troop and company we have had ourselves enlisted. And so Zwingli spent his life on bringing reform to the Swiss people so as to please only his heavenly captain or to say it another way, to bring glory to God alone. And he believed that because he saw it time and again in the pages of God's Word. And so let's do the same, shall we? Let's take a look at some of those passages so that we might be reformed ourselves into seeing that all of life is to be lived for the glory of God alone. And so first off, we can see that the purpose of creation was given for the glory of God. We see that in Psalm 19.1. You'll see all the verses, by the way, behind me, if Sam can keep up with me. Uh, yeah, so Psalm 19:1, we see there the heavens declare what the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So the world around us is understood by the Bible to be talking to us. And if we have ears to hear and eyes to see, what are they saying? What are we seeing? And according to this verse, it is proclaiming the glory of God. Now, the glory of God is virtually impossible to define. It's such a great thing. It's almost impossible to define. But we might define it as the infinite splendor of God's majesty. Or the praise of God's manifold perfections. Or maybe the brightness of God's beauty. Or maybe the display of God's grandeur. Pick whatever you choose. Maybe even craft kind of your own that kind of fits inside of those. But... God set the world into existence in order to declare His glory, His praise, His power, His might, His majesty, His beauty. And if we take the time to listen, if we take the time to see, it's there speaking to us, showing us His glory. In Numbers 14.21, the Lord speaks and says that, quote, the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Isaiah 43, verse 7, everyone who is called by My name whom I created, why? For my glory. We've already read Romans eleven thirty six this morning. From him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the what? Glory when? Forever. Amen. And so if you ever ask the question, why is there something rather than nothing? Well, this is why. This is why. God, who is from eternity, set the world into existence for the praise of his manifold perfections. So now, some of you may be saying to yourself, well, isn't that sort of arrogant of God to do that? I mean, if I were to create a widget business and I were to create this widget business and say, I'm creating this widget business for the praise of my glory. Well, we would all understand you to be arrogant. So was God being arrogant to create the world for his glory? That's a fair question. But I would ask, I would respond by asking you, what would you have him to treasure? 
if not his glory. See, whatever you're tempted to respond with is something that's lesser than himself, lesser than his infinite worth. And so I, I wonder maybe if some of you remember the first commandment, right? The first commandment is to have no other gods before him. We can remember even Jesus' teaching when he said the greatest commandment is what? To love the Lord your God with everything, with everything. And so why would God not, not, why would God not obey his own commands? Why would he, the highest and best of all things, why would he treasure something that is not the most valuable? No, friend, God is no idolater. We see his wisdom by his treasuring what we would expect him to treasure, the greatest of all things, namely his own glory. And so the reason why we are told not to seek our glory is because we are not the highest and best of all, all things. Only God is. Only God is. And so that explains why God is not arrogant, but is instead is wise for treasuring his glory above all else. But let's get back to the word. Let's get back to the study of Scripture. We've seen so far that the glory of God is, is, the, is behind the purposes of creation. But then the fall enters in. Sin enters in the world in Genesis 3. So what then? What's God's purpose then? Since sin does not glorify God. In fact, it takes away from that. That's what sin's trying to do. Trying to steal glory of God. So what is God doing now with sin in the world, which is taking away from His glory? Well, No surprise, he's bringing about redemption for his namesake, which is another way of saying glory for his namesake. So I'm just going to skip a rock across the Bible and all the major events and show you how we can see that through redemption history that God is pursuing the glory of his name. We've already seen that in the beginning, God created for his glory. But what about the call to Abram in Genesis 12? Well, what we find in verses 1 and 2, what we find is that God is going to make a name for Abram so that in his offspring, in Abram's offspring, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, if we're not careful, we might be led to believe that God was interested in exalting Abram. But God, friends, was working in Abram so that his offspring, so, so that through his offspring, he might have a people on earth to live and to display his great name. That's exactly how Paul reads Genesis 12 himself. Paul, a noted Old Testament theologian, been trained by the best, he concludes in Romans 4.20 this, speaking of Abram, he says, no unbelief made him, Abram, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave what? Glory to God. Fully convinced that God was able to do what He promised. And so through the seed of Abraham, God's people, Israel, came and God brought them about for His glory. And so what did God then do with Israel? Well, they were captive in Egypt for 400 years, at which time the Lord hears the cries, their cries and their pleas, uh, to have them delivered from from the Egyptians. And why does He do this? Well, He does this For his glory, for his namesake. Take a look at Exodus chapter 14, verse 4. This is God speaking, and he says, Pharaoh would have been the leader of the Egyptians, I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Drop down verse 18, same passage. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. And of course, we know this is what happens. God does deliver them from the Egyptians. And years later, the Lord's prophet, Ezekiel, looks back on this delivery and says in Ezekiel 20, verse 9, why did he do this? Well, because I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived. Psalm 106, verse 8, the psalmist also concludes that the delivery of Egypt was, quote, for his namesake, that he might make known his power. Now, once they are delivered from the Egyptians, they're then given the law in the wilderness. And again, what is the first law of the Ten Commandments? We've already rehearsed it, right? To have no other gods before him. The second commandment was to have no image by which they were to bow down to. And the third command of the Ten Commandments was to not take the Lord's name in vain. 
And so clearly the purpose of the law is seen in those first three commands. That the purpose of the law is to prioritize the right worship of God above all things. But like they often did, they got it wrong. Israel gets it wrong. God's tempted to smoke them, the Israelites. But in grace and in kindness and in love, he doesn't. Why? Later in Ezekiel 20, verse 22, he tells us, I withheld my hand and acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations in whose sight I brought them out. Well, God then delivers uh, Israel uh, into the land of Canaan, the land of promise. King David explains why the Lord does this. Uh, in Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 23, uh, David is describing why God delivers them into the land of Canaan. He says, and who is like your people, Israel? The one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people. Well, then they get into the land of Canaan. And so then they are the next important event is the building of the temple. Why does God have them to build the temple? Well, let's hear the prayer of Solomon at the time as to why we get our answer in first Kings eight forty one to forty three. When a foreigner who is not of your people, Israel, comes from a far country. Why? For your namesake, for they shall uh, hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays towards this house, that's the temple, here in heaven in your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people, Israel. Well, no surprise again, Israel fails once again. And like Adam and Eve, the next great event of history in Old Testament is the uh, exile from God's people out of that land of Canaan. They're exiled from there off to Babylon. And we learn in Isaiah 48 verses 9 to 11 why God removed them. For my namesake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory, I will not give to another Well, throughout all of this time, God is promising a deliverer. He's promising a Messiah. He's promising a Savior who would deliver God's people from their sin, reconcile them back to God, that they might know God, enjoy God, worship God, praise God. And we know this one of whom is promised is Jesus the Christ, whom God sent to pay the penalty for sin, to reconcile us back to God by grace, through faith, for his glory. And we might be led to ask the question, why did God do this? Why did God send his son? What was his ultimate aim in sending his son? Was the main aim, was the ultimate aim in order to prove or to live for our infinite worth? Well, it certainly involved our worth. I don't think Jesus ultimately, or even more before he he did not die for the glory of ants, though I do think ants will be glorified in the new heavens and new earth. It did involve our worth. God sent his son because he loves his children and the cross proves our worth. Remember, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to us that we might be glorified, as we'll talk about. But our worth, friends, is a shadow in comparison to God's worth. And so the way so as to honor our worth is to then uh, have us be made possible to honor his worth. That's a way that he loves us. And Jesus knew that. Jesus knew that his sacrifice would allow sinners to enjoy the infinite worth of his heavenly father. And this is the main or the highest reason why Jesus came. Listen to the words of Jesus himself in John chapter 12, verse 27. This is just before he's delivered over to be crucified. He's praying to God and says, now is my soul troubled. So this is right at the end. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. And then what does he ask? Father, 
glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And so, friends, the hour of the cross was Christ's purpose. And in the face of it, Jesus prays to glorify the name of the Father. And the Father then responds that I have glorified it and I will glorify it in the cross because that's the aim of the world, the glory of God alone. And this is what Christ ultimately secures on the cross by dying for sin, raising for sin. He makes a way for sinners to be reconciled by grace and through faith in his work. But for what? For what? Second Corinthians four, five and six. So clear. Paul writing for what we that's Christians, what we proclaim is not ourselves. But Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servant. Note the words for Jesus's sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness. Notice he's he's pulling off of Genesis one. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our, that's Christians, hearts. Why? To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where can we see it? In the face of Jesus Christ. Well, then what are we? How are we to respond to those of us that have repented and believed, see the glory of Christ, enjoying the glory of Christ? What is it we are to do? Live out. Think about day after day. First Corinthians 10, 31. Whether you eat. Or you drink, do it all. For what purpose? The glory of God. Do it all for the glory of God. And then the final chapter of redemption history, the return of Christ, the final chapter, what will we do when He comes to bring in that eternal state? Second Thessalonians 1, 9-10. He first speaks of unbelievers. Note the language. They, it's unbelievers, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And when he comes on that day, there's the return, when he comes on that day to what? To be glorified in his saints. And to be, I love this, marveled at among those who believe. This is what God's doing in the world, friends. He is about spreading a passion for his glory among his people. And therefore, those of us who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, we are happy to live for this great end. Psalm 115, verse 1, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Christ has made a way through his work to have us to see and to enjoy and to treasure the glory of God, the end for which we were made because our sin has kept us from doing that. And now through the work of Christ, we can see God, know God, enjoy God, tell others about the greatness of the glory of God. Such a gift. See, friends, so much of what passes for Christianity, I think, loses sight of this simple and yet profound truth. If the end or point or goal of your understanding of the gospel does not terminate or end in the everlasting praise and glory of God, then you're missing the goal of God in the world. This is the wonderful end for which we were made. Not to praise ourselves, but to praise God. Which is why Jesus said that loving God was the most important command. And also, I think we are like, most like God when we're loving our neighbor as we love ourselves. Loving them. Loving God. Loving neighbor. That's what God does to advance His glory. So, I want to briefly, here's what I want to do to finish our time. I want to briefly ask and then answer the question. Will life on earth and life everlasting be boring when lived to the glory of God? I'm sure some of you are thinking that. I suspect that's a question some of you are asking. So is a life glorying in God going to end in my everlasting boredom? Right? I mean, some of you are thinking that. I'm sure. I've asked that question before myself. You know, I can remember when I played baseball and I'd have a good day and people would tell me what a great game I had and I would think, oh, this is, I really like this. People glorying in me. Which then begs the question, well, then maybe hell is more fun than heaven. When we receive glory. So maybe you're asking that question. So understand this is a dangerous question, right? Is God boring? Is heaven boring? Is hell more fun? These are dangerous questions because if they're asked with a posture of defiance and not like a child 
with a posture of inquisitiveness. One stands to be in judgment of God. But I'm going to assume the best about us. I think that all of you, most of you, maybe all, yeah, all of you are sort of like me. There's like, will it be? I mean, you're sort of trying to understand. Is living for the glory of God, both now and forever, going to be boring? Help me understand that, Nathan. Well, the verse that I go back to when I sort of wonder about these things, the verse I go back to often is James chapter 1, verse 16 to 17, in order to answer that question. James 1, 16, 17 says this. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Now stop right there. That tells me I might be deceived about the evaluation of my joy. I ought not just immediately assume I got it right. So I need that words there to help me understand. I might be deceived. So don't be deceived, my beloved brothers, my beloved brothers and sisters. And then he goes on to say in verse 17, every know that word. Oh, I love those five letters. Every. Not some, not most. Every good gift. And every just if if. If it's not clear enough already, James goes out of his way. Every perfect gift is where? It's from above. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So whatever pure and perfect gift you can think of right now, whatever that is, the thing that you think will bring you joy, whatever that thing is, insofar as it's pure, undefiled, it comes from God. Even joy. So if you're wondering about joy, joy comes from God. Pleasure, love. God is love, right? God, its source is God. So that means that whatever good thing I have in mind, every pure desire, not a sinful desire, sinfulness just takes something. Sin cannot, sin, sin cannot create, by the way. Sin only takes what's created and twists it and makes it ugly. So uh, not talking about those things. Any good thing, any perfect gift, its source is is God. Therefore, a life with God will never be boring since He is the source of all good things. Every perfect gift. In fact, when I think it's boring or when I'm tempted to check out on God, I'm actually aware that the serpent is whispering in my ear, once again, God is holding out on you. He's holding out this life with God, this glorying in God. Mm-mm. If you sin, oh, then you'll know the difference between good and evil. He's holding out on you. Eat. Look how good that, I think, fig is. Call it apple, whatever. Eat it. Look how good. He's holding out on you. Why would he not want you to have that good fig, good apple? Eat it. And because they doubted the goodness of God, they ate and found out it was a poor decision. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. When I'm tempted by that, I'm reminded that's the evil one telling me that God's holding out on me. And another one I use a lot, other than James 1, I think it will be helpful to you, is Matthew 7, 9 to 11. I love this verse. Oh, I go back to this verse so often. Uh, mm, just love this. Jesus says there, if a son asks his dad for a piece of bread, will he give him a stone? Let me think about this. My son, if he were to ask me, Dad, can I have a piece of bread? I'm going to, here you go, here's a rock, buddy. Right? Jesus understands, like, And then he goes on to conclude, he goes, if you, being evil, know how to give good gifts, how much more will your good heavenly Father give good gifts to those of whom he loves? Oh, so helpful to be reminded by that. No, friend, heaven will not be a bore. And how is it I know that? Because every good and perfect gift comes from God. God, Romans 8.32, did not, did not spare His only Son, but gave Him up for us all. And so how will He not with Him not also graciously give us all things? Those are the promises. Whatever it is in here, do, put this on, put this off. Whatever those things are. Good, perfect gifts, heaven, joy, life. Even if it seems and it is sometimes difficult. I love this story of Henry Venn. Henry Venn, pastor, 1700s, dying on his deathbed. People, they come to him, they tell him, Henry, you're about to die. You're going to be dying today. Henry Venn gets so excited that he's going to get to see and enjoy God. He lives for two more weeks. Yes! Just get there. More there. Right? So beautiful. There's no death in heaven. No tears of sorrow in heaven. There's no deception in heaven. No, de- no abuse, no lying, no cheating. Why? Because all of those things... 
the, the bad powers of that are, are, are presence of things away from God. And, and the, the honesty, the, the lack of health, no lying, no cheating, all that other stuff, the good side of that is all representative of the character of God. And so to be with him is to be forever joyful and right and true. And so, again, you can imagine what it will be like in hell, away from the presence of God. And you can imagine what unhindered access to this God would be like. You can imagine what it might be like for those of us if we would but give more of ourselves to Him, to enjoy Him. A life lived for the glory of God is a life that is lived to chase everlasting joy. I don't know if anybody's ever told you that before. But you should know that. Is it a life that has barriers? Of course it does. Of course it does. God would not love you if He did not give you boundaries by which to run in. In the same way, I would not love my son if I took him up to the top of the Empire State Building, tore down all the barriers and said, have a good time, run all over the place you want. We understand those barriers are for their joy. They might see and behold. And this is exactly what God promises to us. This is what Jesus promises to us. This everlasting joy in God. John 15, 11, I could give you a hundred verses. John 15, 11, Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you. Why? That my joy may be in you and that your joy may have a few things in you. So what he says? That your joy may be full. Full. Final question. Application. How do we live this out? How do we how do we do this by grace? How do we do this? How do we live for the great end of the universe? How can we be on the same mission God is on to spread a passion for his glory alone and to crucify the pursuit of our own glory? How do we do that? Well, one simple and profoundly difficult application. Here it is. He must increase. I must decrease. He must increase and I must decrease. That's how we do this. That's how we begin to do this. Those words that I just quoted, those words are the words of John the baptizer, the man that Jesus called the greatest prophet. John himself said, after me comes he who is mightier than I am, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. See, he got it. And he said, he must Increase and I must decrease. And so, brothers, sisters, in our jobs, he must increase. You must decrease. I must decrease. Less selfish ambition, more godly ambition. In our singleness, he must increase. I must decrease. In our marriages, he must, him and his ways must increase, and I and my ways must decrease. In the pursuit of education, he must increase. I must decrease in my evaluation of things, in my pursuit of things. In our relationships to our parents or our extended family, he must increase. I must decrease. In the use of our money, he must increase. I must decrease. In the use of our technology, he must increase. I must decrease. In the use of our time, Evaluating our time. He must increase. I must decrease. In our relationships, He must increase. And I must decrease. By our, by our doing what? By our thinking of others as better than ourselves. Philippians 2, which then goes on to show how Jesus did that on the cross. In our relationships, we're thinking more of them, less of me. More of them, less of me. That's how we do this. In our relationships to the church, in our relationship to the church, he must increase and I must decrease since the church is the vessel that he is using to advance his glory. Ephesians 3.21. Or sorry, yes, Ephesians 3.21. The church is the vessel he is using to bring, the most noted vessel, to bring glory to his name. So more, more affection, more desire, more glory in the life of the church together, less of me and my personal agendas. In our relationships to the lost, whoever they are, wherever they are, he must increase in those relationships to the lost that don't know Jesus and are living for another glory. And I, in those relationships, I've got to decrease more in those relationships through repentance, these kinds of things. For those that are not trusting in Christ, that may be you today. I am sure that in a room this size, there are people that are here that don't know Jesus. 
listen, friend, if you want, I know that you want glory. I want you, I know that you want to enjoy life. Well, friend, I promise you, you'll never find it until you live for the glory of God. So turn from sin, trust in Jesus, and know the joy that can be had in a life with Him. It will not be an easy life, but it will be the life for which you were made. Beloved, the books you read, the TV shows you watch, whatever those things are, the music we listen to, He must increase, and I must decrease, and all of those things. And I don't know about you guys, but I feel as though I so often so often try and control my life in such a way as to get the maximum amount of personal glory and enjoyment. And I can tell you this, I'm exhausted by it. I'm exhausted from trying to have things go just the way that I want them to. I'm exhausted from trying to think just the right thing, pray just the right thing, speak in such a way as to get the right amount of things to go just the way way that I want them to. I'm exhausted from trying to get my life to be just the way that I want it. And I'm not just talking about bad things. I'm talking about good things. I'm exhausted from trying to get my way at work or uh, my marriage or my kids or whatever the case may be. No one, not one of those things has ever turned out the way that I want them to. Not one. I'm exhausted by attempting to do it. And because of my attempts to sort of, you know, kind of control my life in just the right way to get my personal interpretive joy out of it and glory out of it, no matter what happens, I get frustrated, I get, I, I get uh, uh, tired, I get exhausted. And I think that God looks down at me in these times and says to me, less of you, Nathan, more of me. Too much of you in this, Nathan. You need to die to yourself. Less of you, more of me. Less of your plans, less of your agendas, more of my plans, my agendas, more of my timelines. It's one he's pressing in on me a lot. My time for my glory. More of me, Nathan. Less of you. And here's what I found, folks, in my 42 round trips of the sun. When I stop trying to increase, when Nathan stops trying to increase, I die to myself and begin to decrease for the purposes of Christ's increase. You know what I find? Peace. I'm not going to tell you that everything's good, but I find more peace. I find more contentment. You remember that word from our study in Philippians? Remember that? Paul talked about that so much. Remember, this was so much of the lesson of Philippians. In a world that is trying to customize everything, we come to expect God to customize our lives like we do our smartphones. And because of that, we often get frustrated and exhausted. And we easily forget God is not primarily interested in fulfilling all of our personal agendas. He loves us. He's for us. He wants the best for us. Which explains why He is working in us for His good pleasure. It's not separate from Him wanting the best for us. No, it's the same way that I love my kids, right? Like I, I know what's right and what's wrong and I'm trying to tell Him even when He doesn't like things, like no to this, yes to that. You're, listen, you need to be oriented towards the good things. God loves us. He's for us. Which explains why He's trying to work in us for His good pleasure. And His good pleasure, God's good pleasure, God's glory is not at odds with our pleasure. And so far as we're giving ourselves to Him. When we give ourselves to God's glory and not our own glory, from the small to the great, we know peace. In the midst of all kinds of temptation. This is exactly what Paul talks about so often in the New Testament. We are glory chasers, aren't we? We are glory chasers. And we are glory chasers. Why? Because God made us to be. He made us to be glory chasers. But He didn't make us to pursue our own glory. He made us to chase His glory. And here's what's amazing. Christian, hear this. Don't lose sight of this. In Christ, you are glorified. Romans 8. 
Go and, go and read that wonderful chain. Note the words, e, note the letters at the end. You are glorified. It's perfected. Why? Because Christ is glorified and you're in Christ and you are glorified. So the glory that you're trying to seek, Christ has already secured it for you. You don't have to try and pursue it. Christ has done it for you. Enjoy his glory in you. And stop working so hard to try to get glory from everybody else. And the greatest thing above all, God himself in Christ has used his perfections and transferred his glory to you through faith in Jesus. So you can stop trying to pursue your own glory. And so wherever it is you're chasing glory by trying to have things done in your time and your way, whatever, listen, repent, receive the grace and the mercy of Christ, trust in Christ and say to him, Jesus, increase in my life. Help me to decrease. God, would you? And this or in that, whatever this, this, God, increase there. Help me to decrease there. Help me to give myself to your ideas, your plans over there. Help me to turn away and stop working so hard and be exhausted from my timelines, my agendas. You increase in this, I decrease in this. Pray that. In Restoration Church, pray these things for us as a church family. Don't just pray for yourself or your own circle. Pray for us as a church family that we as a people, as a church, would increase, that Christ would increase. And we as a people, uh, apart from Christ, we on our agendas would decrease. Pray that for us in leadership. Pray that for us in leadership, in our membership, in our discipline, in our, the way we use our time, the way we use our money as a church, in our resources. Ask that God would receive more and more glory and that we as a people would decrease. Pray we would be more mindful of God's grace. God's glory and pray we would lessen the pursuit of our own glory as a people, as a church. That's how we pursue God's great aim in the world. And soon enough, beloved, soon enough, guess what? We will see his glory. We'll see it with our eyes and it's going to be great. I promise. I love my story of my mom. She's like, she was talking about something, a question about heaven. She calls me up. Asked me this question back and forth, and she says, "Like Nathan, I don't know if, uh, like, I don't know if that's going to work out in heaven or whatever the case may be. I just don't know, and eh, I don't really like this idea." And I said, "Mom, I promise you will not be disappointed in heaven. I promise, whatever it is, I don't know how this or that's going to work out, but you're going to enjoy the glory of God. Do you know in Revelation it teaches there will be no need of sun nor moon? Why? Do you know why? You should go back and read this, but I'll give you the answer." Revelation 21, because the glory of Christ will shine so brightly. Isn't that beautiful? And we will get to see it and enjoy it forever and ever. In all of its fullness. So I assure you, that on the day of Christ and in heaven, you will enjoy the glory of God forever and ever. And so may we all live towards that end and put our own uh, glory, the pursuit of our own glory down and bring up His It is so much better. His ways are so much better. I know they are for me. The more I give myself to him, the more contentment I find. I trust that it will be the same for you and for us as a church. Let's pray. Oh, Father, hallow your name on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, we pray that you would give us this day our daily bread. Thank you, God, that you've already fed us from your word. Forgive us of our debts. As we also forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil of pursuing our own glory. And deliver us to the pursuit of of your glory forever and ever. Amen.